Chapter Forty Four of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Petition. The time for hearing the petition at Percy Cross had at length come, and the judge had gone down to that ancient borough. The day fixed was Monday, the twenty seventh, and Parliament had then been sitting for three weeks. Mr. Griffinbottom had been as constant in his place as though there had been no sword hanging over his head, but Sir Thomas had not as yet even taken the oaths. He had made up his mind that he would not even enter the house while this bar against him as a legislator existed, and he had not as yet even been seen in the lobby. His daughters, his colleague, Mr. Trigger and Stem, had all expostulated with him on the subject, assuring him that he should treat the petition with the greatest contempt, at any rate till it should have proved itself by its success to be a matter not contemptible. But to these counsellors he gave no ear, and when he went down to give his evidence before the judge at Percycross, his seat had as yet availed him nothing. Mr. Griffinbottom had declared that he would not pay a shilling towards the expense of the petition, maintaining that his own seat was safe, and that any peril incurred had been so incurred simply on behalf of Sir Thomas. Nothing, according to Mr. Griffinbottom's views, could be more unjust than to expect that he should take any part in the matter. Trigger, too, had endeavored to impress this upon Sir Thomas more than once or twice. But this had been all in vain, and Sir Thomas, acting under the advice of his own attorney, had at last compelled Mr. Griffinbottom to take his share in the matter. Mr. Griffinbottom did not scruple to say that he was very ill-used, and to hint that any unfair practices which might possibly have prevailed during the last election at Percycross had all been adopted on behalf of Sir Thomas, and in conformity with Sir Thomas's views. It will, therefore, be understood that the two members did not go down to the borough in the best humor with each other. Mr. Trigger still nominally acted for both, but it had been almost avowed that Sir Thomas was to be treated as a Jonah, if by such treatment any salvation might be had for the ship of which Griffinbottom was to be regarded as the captain. Mr. Westmacott was also in Percy Cross, and so was Moggs, reinstated in his old room at the Cordwainer's Arms. Moggs had not been summoned, nor was his presence there required for any purpose immediately connected with the inquiry to be made. But purity and the rights of labor may always be advocated, and when better than at a moment in which the impurity of a borough is about to be made the subject of public condemnation. And Moggs, moreover, had now rankling in his bosom a second cause of enmity against the Tories of the borough. Since the election he had learned that his rival, Ralph Newton, was in some way connected with the sitting member, Sir Thomas, and he laid upon Sir Thomas's back the weight of his full displeasure in reference to the proposed marriage with Polly Neefit. He had heard that Polly had raised some difficulty, 
had indeed rejected her aristocratic suitor, and was therefore not without hope, but he had been positively assured by Neefit himself that the match would be made, and was consequently armed with a double purpose in his desire to drive Sir Thomas ignominiously out of Percycross. Sir Thomas had had more than one interview with Sergeant Burnaby and little Mr. Joram, than whom two more astute barristers in such matters were not to be found at that time practicing. Though perhaps at that time the astuteness of the sergeant was on the wane, while that of Jackie Joram, as he was familiarly called, was daily rising in repute. Sir Thomas himself, barrister and senior to these two gentlemen, had endeavored to hold his own with them, and to impress on them the conviction that he had nothing to conceal, that he had personally endeavored, as best he knew how, to avoid corruption, and that if, therefore, there had been corruption on the part of his own agents, he was himself ready to be a party in proclaiming it. But he found himself to be absolutely ignored and put out of court by his own counsel. They were gentlemen with whom professionally he had had no intercourse, as he had practiced at the Chancery and they at the common law bar. But he had been Solicitor General, and was a bencher of his inn, whereas Sergeant Burnaby was only a sergeant, and Jackie Joram still wore a stuffed gown. Nevertheless he found himself to be nowhere in discussing with them the circumstances of the election. Even Joram, whom he seemed to remember having seen only the other day as an ugly, shamefaced boy about the courts, treated him not exactly with indignity, but with patronizing good nature, listening with an air of half-attention to what he said, and then not taking the slightest heed of a word of it. Who does not know this transparent pretense of courtesies, which of all discourtesies is the most offensive? Ah, just so, Sir Thomas, just so. And now, Mr. Trigger, I suppose Mr. Puffer's account hasn't yet been settled? Any word from Mr. Trigger was of infinitely greater value with Mr. Joram than all Sir Thomas's protestations. Sir Thomas could not keep himself from remembering that Jackie Joram's father was a cheesemonger at Gloucester, who had married the widow of a Jew with a little money. Twenty times Sir Thomas made up his mind to retire from the business altogether, but he always found himself unable to do so. When he mentioned the idea, Griffinbottom flung up his hands in dismay at such treachery on the part of an ally, such treachery and such cowardice. What had not he, Sir Thomas, forced him, Griffinbottom, into all this ruinous expenditure? And now to talk of throwing up the sponge? It was in vain that Sir Thomas explained that he had forced nobody into it, it was manifestly the case that he had refused to go on with it by himself, and on this Mr. Griffinbottom and Mr. Trigger insisted so often and with so much strength that Sir Thomas felt himself compelled to stand to his guns, bad as he believed those guns to be. If Sir Thomas meant to retreat, why had he not retreated when a proposition to that effect was made to him at his own chambers? 
of all the weak, vacillating, ill-conditioned men that Mr. Griffinbottom had ever been concerned with, Sir Thomas Underwood was the weakest, most vacillating, and most ill-conditioned. To have to sit in the same boat with such a man was the greatest misfortune that had ever befallen Mr. Griffinbottom in public life. Mr. Griffinbottom did not exactly say these hard things in the hearing of Sir Thomas, but he so said them that they became the common property of the Jorums, Triggers, Spiveycombs, and Spicers, and were repeated piecemeal to the unhappy second member. He had secured for himself a separate sitting-room at the Percy Standard, thinking that thus he would have the advantage of being alone. But every one connected with his party came in and out of his room as though it had been specially selected as a chamber for public purposes. Even Griffinbottom came into it to have interviews there with Trigger, although at the moment Griffinbottom and Sir Thomas were not considered to be on speaking terms. Griffinbottom in these matters seemed to have the hide of a rhinoceros. He had chosen to quarrel with Sir Thomas. He had declared that he would not speak to a colleague whose parliamentary ideas and habits were so repulsive to him. He had said quite aloud that Trigger had never made a greater mistake in his life than in bringing Sir Thomas to the borough, and that, let the petition go as it would, Sir Thomas should never be returned for the borough again. He had spoken all these things almost in the hearing of Sir Thomas, and yet he would come to Sir Thomas's private room and sit there half the morning with a cigar in his mouth. Mr. Pyle would come in and make most unpleasant speeches. Mr. Spicer called continually with his own ideas about the borough. The thing could be still saved if enough money were spent. If Mr. Givantake were properly handled and Mr. O'Blather duly provided for, the two witnesses upon whom the thing really hung would not be found in Percycross when called upon to-morrow. That was Mr. Spicer's idea, and he was very eager to communicate it to Sergeant Burnaby. Trigger, in his energy, told Mr. Spicer to go and be damned. All this occurred in Sir Thomas's private room, and then Mr. Pabsby was there constantly, till at last was turned out by Trigger. In his agony, Sir Thomas asked for another sitting-room, but was informed that the house was full. The room intended for the two members was occupied by Griffinbottom, but nobody ever suggested that the party might meet there when Sir Thomas's vain request was made for further accommodation. Griffinbottom went on with his cigar, and Mr. Pyle sat picking his teeth before the fire and making unpleasant little speeches. The judge, who had hurried into Percycross from another town, and who opened the commission on the Monday evening, did not really begin his work till the Tuesday morning. Jackie Joram had declared that the inquiry would last three days, he having pledged himself to be at another town early on the following Friday. Sergeant Burnaby, whose future services were not in such immediate demand, was of opinion that they would not get out of Percycross till Saturday night. Judge Crumby, who was to try the case, and who had been trying similar cases ever since Christmas, was not due at his next town till the Monday, 
but it was understood by everybody that he intended, if possible, to spend his Saturday and Sunday in the bosom of his family. Trigger, however, had magnificent ideas. I believe we shall carry them into the middle of next week, he said, if they choose to go on with it. Trigger thoroughly enjoyed the petition, and even Griffinbottom, who was no longer troubled by gout, and was not now obliged to walk about the borough, did not seem to dislike it. But to poor Sir Thomas it was indeed a purgatory. The sitting members were, of course, accused, both as regarded themselves and their agents, of every crime known in electioneering tactics. Votes had been personated, votes had been bought, votes had been obtained by undue influence on the part of masters and landlords, and there had been treating of the most pernicious and corrupt description. As to the personating of votes, that, according to Mr. Trigger, had been merely introduced as a pleasant commencing fiction common in parliamentary petitions. There had been nothing of the kind, and nobody supposed that there had, and it did not signify. Of undue influence? What purists choose to call undue influence, there had, of course, been plenty. It was not likely that masters paying thousands a year in wages were going to let these men vote against themselves. But this influence was so much a matter of course that it could not be proved to the injury of the sitting members. Such at least was Mr. Trigger's opinion. Mr. Spicer might have been a little imprudent with his men, but no case could be brought up in which a man had been injured. Undue influence at Percy Cross was gammon, so said Mr. Trigger, and Jackie Joram agreed with Mr. Trigger. Sergeant Burnaby rubbed his hands and would give no opinion till he had heard the evidence. That votes had been bought during the day of the election, there was no doubt on earth. On this matter great secrecy prevailed, and Sir Thomas could not get a word spoken in his own hearing. It was admitted, however, that votes had been bought. There were a dozen men, perhaps more than a dozen, who would prove that one glump had paid them ten shillings apiece between one and two on the day of the election. There was a general belief that perhaps over a hundred had been bought at that rate, but Trigger was ready to swear that he did not know whence Glump had got the money, and Glump himself was, nobody knew where Glump was, but strange whispers respecting Glump were floating about the borough. Trigger was disposed to believe that they, on their side, could prove that Glump had really been employed by Westmacott's people to vitiate the election. He was quite sure that nothing could connect Glump with him as an agent on behalf of Griffinbottom and Underwood. So Mr. Trigger asserted with the greatest confidence. But what was in the bottom of Mr. Trigger's mind on this subject no one pretended to know. As for Glump himself, he was a man who would certainly take payment from anybody for any dirty work. It was the general impression through the borough that Glump had, on this occasion, been hired by Trigger, and Trigger certainly enjoyed the prestige which was thus conferred upon him. As to the treating, there could be no doubt about that. There had been treating. The idea of conducting an election at Percy Cross without beer 
seemed to be absurd to every male and female Percycrossian. Of course the publicans would open their taps, and then send in their bills for beer to the electioneering agents. There was a prevailing feeling that any interference with so ancient a practice was not only un-English, but unjust also, that it was beyond the power of Parliament to enforce any law so abominable and unnatural. Trigger was of opinion that though there had been a great deal of beer, no attempt would be made to prove that votes had been influenced by treating. There had been beer on both sides, and Trigger hoped sincerely that there might always be beer on both sides as long as Percycross was a borough. Sir Thomas found that his chance of success was now spoken of in a tone very different from that which had been used when the matter was discussed in his own chamber. He had been then told that it was hardly possible that he should keep his seat, and he had in fact been asked to resign it. Though sick enough of Percycross, this he would not do in the manner then proposed to him. Now he was encouraged in the fight, but the encouragement was of a nature which gave him no hope, which robbed him even of the wish to have a hope. It was all dirt from beginning to end. Whatever might be the verdict of the judge, from the judge the verdict was now to come, he should still believe that nothing short of absolute disenfranchisement would meet the merits of the case. The accusation with regard to the personation of votes was abandoned, Sergeant Burnaby expressing the most extreme disgust that any such charge should have been made without foundation. Although he himself at the borough which he had last left had brought forward the same charge on behalf of his then clients, and had abandoned it in the same way. Then the whole of the remaining hours of the Tuesday, and half the Wednesday, were passed in showing that Messrs. Spicer, Spiveycomb, and Rudy Lands had forced their own men to vote blue. Mr. Spicer had dismissed one man, and Mr. Spiveycomb two men, but both these gentlemen swore that the men dismissed were not worth their salt, and had been sent adrift upon the world by no means on account of their politics. True, they had all voted for Moggs, but then they had done that simply to spite their late master. On the middle of Wednesday, when the matter of intimidation had been completed, the result still lying in the bosom of Baron Crumby, Mr. Trigger thought that things were looking up. That was the report which he brought to Mr. Griffinbottom, who was smoking his midday cigar in Sir Thomas's armchair, while Sir Thomas was endeavouring to master the first book of Lord Verulam's later treatise, De Dignitate Scientiarum, seated in a cane-bottomed chair in a very small bedroom upstairs. By consent, the question of treating came next. Heaven and earth were being moved to find glump. When the proposition was made that the treating should come before the bribery, Trigger stated in court that he was himself doing his very best to find the man. There might yet be a hope, though, alas, the hope was becoming slighter every hour. His own idea was that Glump had been sent away to Holland by—well, he did not care to name the parties by whom he believed that Glump had been expatriated. However, there might be a chance— the counsel on the other side remarked that there might indeed be a chance. 
Baron Crumby expressed a hope that Mr. Glump might make his appearance, for the sake of the borough, which might otherwise fare badly, and then the great beer question was discussed for two entire days. There was no doubt about the beer. Trigger, who was examined after some half-score of publicans, said openly that thirsty conservative souls had been allowed to slake their draught at the joint expense of the conservative party in the borough, as thirsty liberal souls had been encouraged to do on the other side. When reminded that any malpractice in that direction, on the part of a beaten candidate, could not affect the status of the elected members, he replied that all the beer consumed in Percycross during the election had not, to the best of his belief, affected a vote. The Percycrossians were not men to vote this way or that because of beer. He would not believe it, even in regard to a liberal Percycrossian. It might be so in other boroughs, but of other boroughs he knew absolutely nothing. Who paid for the beer? Mr. Trigger at once acknowledged that it was paid for out of the general funds provided for the election. Who provided those funds? There was not a small amount of fencing on this point, during the course of which Mr. Joram snapped very sharply and very frequently at the council on the other side, hoping thereby somewhat to change the issue. But at last there came out these two facts, that there was a general fund, to which all conservatives might subscribe, and that the only known subscribers to this fund were Mr. Griffinbottom, Sir Thomas Underwood, and old Mr. Pyle, who had given a ten-pound note, apparently with the view of proving that there was a fund. It was agreed on all hands that treating had been substantiated, but it was remarked by some that Baron Crumby had not been hard upon treating in other boroughs, after all, the result would depend upon what the baron thought about Mr. Glump. It might be that he would recommend further inquiry, under a special commission, into the practices of the borough because of the Glump iniquities, and that he should nevertheless leave the seats to the sitting members. That seemed to be Mr. Trigger's belief on the evening of the Thursday, as he took his brandy and water in Sir Thomas's private sitting-room. There is nothing in the world so brisk as the ways and manners of lawyers when in any great case they come to that portion of it which they know to be the real bone of the limb and kernel of the nut. The doctor is very brisk when, after a dozen moderately dyspeptic patients, he comes on some unfortunate gentleman whose gastric apparatus has gone altogether. The parson is very brisk when he reaches the minatory clause in his sermon. The minister is very brisk when he asks the house for a vote, telling his hoped-for followers that this special point is absolutely essential to his government. Unless he can carry this, he and all those hanging on to him must vacate their places. The horse-dealer is very brisk when, after four or five indifferent lots, he bids his man bring out from the stable the last thoroughbred that he bought and the very best that he ever put his eye on. But the briskness of none of these is equal to the briskness of the barrister who has just got into his hands for cross-examination him whom we may call the center witness of a great case. 
He plumes himself like a bullfinch going to sing. He spreads himself like a peacock on a lawn. He perks himself like a sparrow on a paling. He crows amidst his attorneys and all the satellites of the court like a cock among his hens. He puts his hands this way and that, settling even the sunbeams as they enter, lest a moat should disturb his intellect or dull the edge of his subtlety. There is a modesty in his eye, a quiescence in his lips, a repose in his limbs, under which lie half concealed, not at all concealed from those who have often watched him at his work, the glance, the tone, the spring, which are to tear that unfortunate witness into pieces, without infringing any one of those conventional rules which have been laid down for the guidance of successful, well-mannered barristers. Sergeant Burnaby, though astute, was not specially brisk by nature, but on this Friday morning Mr. Joram was very brisk indeed. There was a certain Mr. Cavity, who had acted as agent for Westmacott, and who, if anybody on the Westmacott side had been so guilty, had been guilty in the matter of Glump's absence. Perhaps we should not do justice to Mr. Joram's acuteness, were we to imagine him as believing that Glump was absent under other influence than that used on behalf of the conservative side. But there were subsidiary points on which Mr. Cavity might be made to tell tales. Of course there had been extensive bribery for years past in Percycross, on the liberal, as well as on the conservative side. And Mr. Joram thought that he could make Mr. Cavity tell a tale. And then, too, he could be very brisk in that affair of Glump. He was pretty nearly sure that Mr. Glump could not be connected by evidence with either of the sitting members or with any of their agents. He would prove that Glump was neutral ground, and that, as such, his services could not be traced to his friend Mr. Trigger. Mr. Joram, on this occasion, was very brisk indeed. A score of men were brought up, ignorant, half-dumb, heavy-browed men, all dressed in the amphibious garb of out-of-door town laborers, of whom there exist a class of hybrids between the rural laborer and the artisan each one of whom acknowledged that afternoon on the election day he received ten shillings, with instructions to vote for Griffinbottom and Underwood. And they did vote for Griffinbottom and Underwood. At all elections in Percy Cross they had, as they now openly acknowledged, waited till about the same hour on the day of election, and then somebody had bought their votes for somebody. On this occasion the purchase had been made by Mr. Glump. There was a small empty house up a little alley in the town, to which there was a back door opening on a vacant space in the town known as Grinder's Green. They entered this house by one door, leaving it by the other, and as they passed through, Glump gave to each man half a sovereign with instructions, entering their names in a small book and then they went in a body and voted for Griffinbottom and Underwood. Each of the twenty knew nearly all the other twenty, but none of them knew any other men who had been paid by Glump. Of course, none of them had the slightest knowledge of Glump's present abode. It was proved that at the last election Glump had acted for the liberals, 
but it was also proved that at the last election before he had been active in bribing for the conservatives very many things were proved if a thing be proved when supported by testimony on oath trigger proved that twenty votes alone could have been of no service and would not certainly have been purchased in a manner so detrimental according to trigger's views it was as clear as daylight that glump had not been paid by them when asked whether he would cause mr glump to be repaid that sum of ten pounds should mr glump send in any bill to that effect he simply stated that mr glump would certainly send no such bill to him he was then asked whether it might not be possible that the money should be repaid by messrs griffenbottom and underwood through his hands reaching glump again by means of a further middleman mr trigger acknowledged that were such a claim made upon him by any known agent of his party he would endeavour to pass the ten pounds through the accounts as he thought that there should be a certain feeling of honour in these things but he did not for a moment think that any one acting with him would have dealings with glump on the saturday morning when the case was still going on to the great detriment of baron grumble's domestic happiness Clump had not yet been caught. It seemed that the man had no wife, no relative, no friend. The woman at whose house he lodged declared that he often went and came after this fashion. The respect with which Glump's name was mentioned, as his persistency in disobeying the law and his capability for intrigue were thus proved, was so great that it was a pity he could not have been there to enjoy it. For the hour he was a great man in Percycross, and the greater because Baron Crumby did not cease to threaten him with terrible penalties. Much other bribery was alleged, but none other was distinctly brought home to the agents of the city members. As to bringing bribery home to Mr. Griffinbottom himself, that appeared to be out of the question. Nobody seemed even to wish to do that. The judge, as it appeared, did not contemplate any result so grave and terrible as that. There was a band of freemen of whom it was proved that they had all been treated with most excessive liberality by the corporation of the town. And it was proved also that a majority of the corporation were supporters of Mr. Griffinbottom. A large number of votes had been so secured. Such, at least, was the charge made by the petitioners but this allegation Jackie Joram laughed to scorn. The corporation, of course, used the charities and privileges of the town as they thought right, and the men voted as they thought right. The only cases of bribery absolutely proved were those manipulated by Glump, and nothing had been adduced clearly connecting Glump and the Griffinbottomites. Mr. Trigger was in ecstasies, but Mr. Joram somewhat repressed him by referring to these oracular words which had fallen from the baron in respect to the corporation. A corporation may be guilty as well as an individual, the baron had said. Jackie Joram had been very eager in assenting to the baron, but in asserting at the same time that the bribery must be proved. It won't be assumed, my lord, that a corporation has bribed because it has political sympathies. 
"'It should have none,' said the baron. "'Human nature is human nature, my lord. "'Even in corporations,' said Jackie Joram. "'This took place just before luncheon, "'which was made a solemn meal on all sides, "'as the judge had declared his intention "'of sitting till midnight if necessary.' Immediately after the solemn meal, Mr. Griffinbottom was examined. It had been the declared purpose of the other side to turn Mr. Griffinbottom inside out. Mr. Griffinbottom and his conduct had, on various former occasions, been the subject of parliamentary petitions under the old form. But on such occasions the chief delinquent himself was never examined. Now Mr. Griffinbottom would be made to tell all that he knew, not only of his present, but of his past iniquities. And yet Mr. Griffinbottom told very little, and it certainly did seem to the bystanders that even the opposing counsel, even the judge on the bench, abstained from their prey because he was a member of Parliament. It was notorious to all the world that Griffinbottom had debased the borough, had so used its venal tendencies as to make that systematic which had before been too frequent indeed but yet not systematized that he had trained the rising generation of percycross politicians to believe in political corruption and yet he escaped that utter turning inside out of which men had spoken the borough had cost him a great deal of money certainly but as far as he knew the money had been spent legally it had at least always been his intention before an election was commenced that nothing illegal should be done he had no doubt always afterwards paid sums of money the use of which he did not quite understand and as to some of which he could not but fear that it had been doubtfully applied the final accounts as to the last election had not reached him but he did not expect to be charged with improper expenses there no doubt would be something for beer, but that was unavoidable. As to Mr. Glump, he knew literally nothing of the man, nor had he wanted any such man's assistance. Twenty votes indeed. Let them look at his place upon the poll. There had been a time in the day when twenty votes this way or that might be necessary to Sir Thomas. He had been told that it was so. On the day of the election his own position on the poll had been so certain to him that he should not have cared, that is, for himself, had he heard that Glump was buying votes against him. He considered it to be quite out of the question that Glump should have bought votes for him, with any purpose of serving him, and so Mr. Griffinbottom escaped from the adverse counsel and from the judge. There was very little in the examination of Sir Thomas Underwood to interest anyone. No one really suspected him of corrupt practices. In all such cases the singular part of the matter is that everybody, those who are concerned and those who are not concerned, really know the whole truth which is to be investigated, and yet that which everybody knows cannot be substantiated. There were not five men in court who were not certain that Griffinbottom was corrupt, and that Sir Thomas was not, that the borough was rotten as a six-month-old egg, that Glump had acted under one of Trigger's aides-de-camp, that intimidation was the law of the borough, 
and that beer was used so that men drunk might not fear that which sober they had not the courage to encounter. All this was known to everybody, and yet up to the last it was thought by many in Percycross that corruption, acknowledged, transparent, egregious corruption, would prevail even in the presence of a judge. Mr. Trigger believed it to the last. But it was not so thought by the Jackie Jorams or by the Sergeant Burnabys. They made their final speeches, the leading lawyer on each side, but they knew well what was coming. At half-past seven, for to so late an hour had the work been continued, the judge retired to get a cup of tea, and returned at eight to give his award. It was as follows. As to the personation of votes, there should have been no allegation made. In regard to the charge of intimidation, it appeared that the system prevailed to such an extent as to make it clear to him that Percycross was unfit to return representatives to Parliament. In the matter of treating, he was not quite prepared to say that, had no other charge been made, he would have declared this election void. But of that also there had been sufficient to make him feel it to be his duty to recommend to the Speaker of the House of Commons that further inquiry should be made as to the practices of the borough. And as to direct bribery, though he was not prepared to say that he could connect the agents of the members with what had been done, and certainly he could not connect either of the two members themselves, still quite enough had been proved to make it imperative upon him to declare the election void. This he should do in his report to the Speaker, and should also advise that a commission be held with a view of ascertaining whether the privilege of returning members of Parliament should remain with the borough. With Griffinbottom he dealt as tenderly as he did with Sir Thomas, sending them both forth to the world, unseated indeed, but as innocent injured men. There was a night train up to London at 10 p.m., by which, on that evening, Sir Thomas Underwood travelled, shaking off from his feet as he entered the carriage the dust of that most iniquitous borough. End of chapter 44 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina